Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 5, Eastwatch is over, but we're just getting started here on our Game of Thrones deep dive here on Post Show Recaps. And now, here are the two guys who hopefully will never have to get a podcasting annulment. I'm Rob Cisternino, back with Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I am doing well. I would never annul our podcasting marriage Though I may, like, bring in other people into our <laughs> podcasting marriage. Okay. That's okay. Okay. That's fine. That's you know, fine. I'll the bring the, the fermented crab just to, uh, <laughs> in case, you know, anybody's getting tired. Was that a bluff? Like, how would that have worked out? You know, I, I, I don't know if, I, I mean, shellfish is an aphrodisiac, I guess. Uh, I think it's so, more of a, a blade. Yeah, <laughs> but to blame. Yeah, I don't think that we need to dive too deep into into all of that. That's for uh, that's for a different podcast yeah, for sure. Was that stuff already in the boat, or did was that the real reason why Davos had to go to Flea Bottom? To he knew a guy he had to go pick that stuff up. Davos never travels anywhere without his distraction crabs. Like mm-hmm. he always just has like in case of emergency, you know, break out the crabs in case of emergency. He just like always knows. Like he's got that trick where like on the other side of the blanket. There's just something that's so revolting and mesmerizing that you're not going to think about, like, the war hammer that's under the other side. Josh, you and I have not talked Game of Thrones in about two weeks, so it is a pleasure to be back with you. How was your trip? Oh, it was great. It was fun. I was in uh, I was in Italy. I was surrounded by uh, by mountains. I thought perhaps I was going to uh, participate in a Clegane Bowl of my own making, but mm-hmm. no such luck. No fighting there. Uh, very pleasant trip. Was very sad that I wasn't able to call in for the, for the deep dive. I got got to where I was and uh there was no internet rob it was it was it was bleak only I would complain about like being abroad and having no internet connection like can I just like enjoy myself I don't know okay well happy to have you back this week to get into everything as we are really starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel here in season 7 of Game of Thrones of course I was live with Stephen Fishback after the episode on Sunday night but really there was a lot to dig into from this episode I really I feel like that we're moving at ludicrous speed now through <laughs> Game of Thrones I, I really I had the feeling coming away from this episode it's almost like i feel like that there were probably like 10 more seasons they needed to make of the show and we're just gonna fit it all into 10 episodes well we are you know it really is instructive to look at season seven as the final season like we are in the first half of the final season right now season seven and season eight view that 13 episodes as one mega-sized episode that's split across at least two years hopefully not more than that Uh, because that's really the momentum that we're seeing. That's the pace of the show right now. Basically, everybody who matters at this point knows what a White Walker is and knows that there is at least the possibility of a threat or there are at least people who believe that there is a threat of the dead walking against the wall, walking towards the wall. Uh, So everyone is on the same page with that being at least a possibility now. That's like pure endgame material. So we're in the thick of the endgame and we're certainly in the endgame of the first half of the season. There's only two more episodes left it really really flew this year but in terms of the speed at which we're telling the story i almost feel like that the previously on game of thrones don't stop when the episode starts where we're just like previously on game of thrones danny sends her people to go to king's landing to get cersei in on this plan and then back on dragonstone that danny green lights the plan and then Jon snow went to is just like boom 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 yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing where, you know, John leaving Dragonstone to go to Eastwatch to embark on the mission beyond the wall like that normally would have been completely offloaded until at least the next episode. But within the same episode, that's wildly insane. Uh, that is ludicrous speed, like to get from Dragonstone to Eastwatch within the same episode. That's really, really lightning fast travel. I mean, even thinking about like Davos and Tyrion traveling from Dragonstone to King's Landing back to Dragonstone and Davos continues up to Eastwatch. It's exhausting. It's too much travel. It's too fast. Yeah. Even you're not traveling that much. No, I'm trying not to anymore. uh, All right. We're also going to have our feedback show coming up on Wednesday. If you have questions about this episode, and I'm sure there will be a lot, you can send them into us. G-O-T at postshowrecaps.com. Postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail for the uh, voicemail calls. Josh, what have you been working on over at Hollywood Reporter? Oh, my God. Writing up a storm. Uh, Lots of stuff that we'll, I'm sure, talk about in this episode. 
like the uh, the legitimate Jon Snow shocker, a uh, truly legitimate uh, surprise that we had there in this episode. So wrote about that, uh, have been taking part in some interviews with some of the actors involved in this episode, including Joe Dempsey, who made his long-awaited, his much-ballyhooed return to Game of Thrones as Gendry, not Baratheon. He's back on the show, spoke with him. That's up on THR.com. Spoke with Nikolai Coster-Waldo today, had a really fun chat with him. That's up on THR as well. I'm going to be speaking with Jerome Flynn, a.k.a. Braun, uh, tomorrow. Very excited about that. I, I've, I interviewed him once, uh, and he was, you know, he's, he's very Braun-ish in, mm-hmm. in reality, which is great. Like, he just has that vibe about him. So excited to get his takes and kind of get the update on, uh, you know, Braun having now, you know, shot a dragon, saved the Lannisters, uh, is maybe leaving the Lannisters. So We'll have some updates from him. And I spoke with director Matt Shackman, uh, previously most famous for his work on It's Always Sunny, now probably most famous for that crazy loot train battle, which you and I did not get a chance to talk about because I was not on the podcast last week. That was insane. That was a really incredibly fun sequence. Anything you want to touch on with the loot train before we get into this week's show? You know, I don't really think that there's there, uh, that. That's the thing is, I think that um, you know, last week's episode was so spectacle heavy and really, really action heavy that I think that it was maybe a little bit lighter on plot than certainly this week. Like a lot happened this week in uh, in terms of plot movement. Um, but certainly there was the Stark reunion that was very exciting. We've got Arya back at Winterfell. Uh, your mileage may vary on how that's going. I'm sure we'll touch on that here in the context of this episode. But as far as the loot train battle is going, I think that they could work on the branding. You know, I don't know that like the loot train battle is going to carry quite like the same like name cachet as the Battle of the Blackwater or the Battle at Hardhome or the Battle at Castle Black. Like the loot train battle just doesn't really quite sing. Where did that name come from? I mean, did they mention the loot train in the episode? I mean, it was a loot train that they were transporting all that loot from High Garden to King's Landing. So the loot, <laughs> the warrant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i'm so glad you picked that up where in the world is davos seaworth yeah. <laughs> where in the world was gendry uh we found out he <laughs> was right, right there in flea bottom right where we left him yes yes okay. yes yes so josh that a lot has been made today about the revelation we found out from the mouth of gilly of all people who had that in their game of thrones pool that that is how we would find out that john is an honest to goodness a true born legitimate targaryen what an unbelievable mechanism for delivering that information. Yeah, absolutely right. I don't think anyone would have had that on their bingo card, that Gilly would be the one to deliver the news to the audience, at least not to anybody else, because, it's, you know, it's falling on deaf ears for Sam. Sam's not really paying attention to the ramifications of what Gilly is saying, though, of course, he's got no reason to believe that Jon Snow is a Targaryen. Yeah. Um, but this is humongous news. This is really, really big news. I mean, Gilly outright says, uh, you know, that that Rhaegar Targaryen was married, had his marriage annulled, and at the same time also got married in a secret ceremony in Dorne. And while the show has never explicitly said on the show that Rhaegar Targaryen is Jon Snow's father, we certainly know that to be the case at this point. Um, and if that's true, if these records are accurate, and I don't know why we would believe they aren't, then that means Jon Snow is a straight-up Targaryen. It's not like he's a Targaryen bastard who is like the, the illegitimate child of this uh, star-crossed love between Lyanna and Rhaegar. He's the product of an honest-to-goodness Targaryen marriage, which makes him the heir to the Iron Throne, by all accounts, right? It's a great thing to have on his resume. Now, does John end up finding this out, assuming he makes it back to Winterfell from Bran? And then is Gilly there to confirm this? Well, I mean, Sam stole all those books. Oh, he so has them all. OK, one, one hopes that he has that book as well. Like, you know, Gilly was really into the into the text that she was reading. And hopefully he's at least letting her, you know, keep that even if he didn't see him, you know, to think it was it was too important. Uh, but I mean, all it would take really is like Sam and Gilly have to get to Winterfell. They meet Bran and Bran just like does like his, you know, super insane quick scan of what's going on with Sam and Gilly, uh, you know, g- talks all about in graphic detail that great night at Castle Black and, you know, runs down all the details of what happened at Horn Hill. And then is like, 
Oh, you read about uh, about Jon Snow's parents and they're married. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, John, John, come over here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there could be some sort of collaboration and like sharing of the information at that point, because I don't know how Sam and Gilly find out that there is this secret Targaryen baby, unless that's also part of, uh, you know, whatever's in this text that Gilly just read. Could the show have done this better, Josh? I mean, yes. everybody applauded the way they handled like the brand flashback scenes into the Tower of Joy in season six. It was such a high point for the show this was just like uh oh by the way gilly just read this yeah i definitely think so i think that this is a really odd way to convey such important information i mean this is potentially the most important information we've ever received on game of thrones about you know like the human political side of things um and potentially even like the the mythical standing of some of these characters like the fact that john is such a faded figure at this point this is a man who you know he's faded get faded he you know he died he came back to life he was the lord commander of the night's watch now he's the king in the north now he is potentially the rightful heir to the iron throne he has fire and ice coursing through his veins he has killed a white walker he has stared down against the night king he's going to go off on this mission to bag a white to uh to you know do this like snatch and grab mission beyond the wall he you know he faced a dragon this week and it went really really well so john is just this mesmerizingly important character and you get this really really big bit of information about the fact that he might be the most important person politically on the show not just in terms of the fight against the white walkers but in terms of the race for the iron throne and you get it as an aside from gilly and i think what's what's odd about it is the audience knows this information like it hasn't been said outright on the show yet that john is the son of liana and rhaegar we know based on the juxtaposition of the editing of the tower of joy scene into the scene right before john is announced as the king in the north in the season six finale that that juxtaposition tells us that john is the baby that we're seeing at the tower of joy but the show just hasn't like been explicit with that and i think Anyone who is, you know, listening to podcasts at least, uh, and I think even most people who are watching Game of Thrones and like no other people who are really deep into the show have at least heard the idea that John is like 99%, if not 100% at this point, a Targaryen. And the fact that it's being withheld from the characters on the show, uh, you know, we're five episodes past the point where it was revealed in that Tower of Joy sequence at the end of season six, and you're just getting information like this as an aside. It is really wonky to me, and I and I do wonder if it's the right narrative choice. This is the kind of thing where there are scenes where John is at Dragonstone and he's petting Drogon's snout, and like that has real rewatch factor. If you don't know that John is a Targaryen, like, and you go through the show later on, and like you know, on like a second watch, once that information is out there, it's like, wow, that has a lot of significance. But on the first watch, like, you're getting those feelings of a rewatch. I just don't know if that's like the most, you know, I don't think that's like the best utility of the of the story economy of Game of Thrones with so much uh, with so little time left, rather. So I'm not wild about how that information was conveyed. It's also a bad look on Sam just yara yarring past uh, this very pivotal information. Why? You think that that should have had more significance for Samwell? No, no. I just think like it's like very frustrating. It's like, Sam, shut up. Like, will you talk? Like, obviously, he has no idea. But it's just like it's it's an an unfortunate look for for Sam to just like be complaining about his problems at the Citadel while Gilly is giving us the most important information we've Mm -hmm. received all season long. It's just a bad look. So you mentioned John with the dragon. We didn't really get much of a reaction from Danny in terms of seeing Drogon not just devour Jon Snow or burn him to a crisp i mean what was danny going for there i think that she's fascinated with Jon snow i mean this was episode she negging him <laughs> she negging him no i think she's kind of seeing like what's going on down here uh you know i think that she's kind of she's well, curious. She, yeah she <laughs> she's you know she's studying him she's trying to figure out what's going on with Jon snow they're sizing each other up clearly they both have um you know kind of growing admiration for each other in terms of their importance and their ability to lead people and they both you know potentially really need each other danny would like john to bend the knee so she could have the north's cooperation john would like danny to cooperate so that all of mankind survives what's coming um and i think that this moment where he is stepping up to the dragon and just like kind of doing his thing and the fact that he is brave enough to even try 
touching Drogon, I think she's curious to see what happens. I think the other piece of it, too, though, is it certainly seems at this point that between Daenerys and Drogon, at least if not Daenerys and the other two dragons as well, she has a lot more mastery over her children these days than she did once upon a time. So I don't think that Drogon's just like going to eat somebody that Daenerys cares about. I think that there's like a degree of like an empathetic connection between the creature and the rider. I think that that's a thing with dragon lore. Uh, so John's going to be fine here, but obviously the fact that Drogon is so responsive uh, and so receptive to John is a, another big clue about the fact that John is a Targaryen dragons like Targaryens. John's got old Valyrian blood coursing through his veins. So of course these guys are going to be fast friends. Now, based on what we've seen now through five episodes, are you still shipping John and Danny? It's, I mean, it's unbelievably awkward. It's the most awkward ship ever, but it's like also like a very, uh, you know, it's a ship that you kind of want to see sail together. Uh, I mean, she's his aunt. Uh, that's, that's very Oedipal. It's a very Oedipal relationship that we might be driving at. I think whether or not you want to An ship Oedipal it, arrangement. Show, yeah. Yes, Oedipal arrangements indeed. Not a sponsor of this podcast, though. Uh, like, I do think that there is this, you know, there is this growing attraction between these two characters, and there is this sense of inevitability of these two characters getting together at some point. Unless, like, it, the news comes out and hits the wire before they are able to, like, have a Luke and Leia moment. Hopefully, you know, that would be, that would be all right if these guys could like be spared future embarrassment but i wonder you know there is the history within the targaryen family of incest you know the aegon the conqueror had two wives that rode into westeros with him when they conquered what became known as the seven kingdoms uh and they were both his sisters one was his older sister one was his younger sister uh and i i believe that even daenerys's own parents i believe the mad king was married to his own sister as well so Runs in the family, you know, within the context of Game of Thrones, like it's, you know, an aunt and a nephew in the Targaryen lineage. Like, it's not so weird, I guess. I guess. But like, you feel kind of weird when you say that out loud. We had the return of Gendry last night. Everybody was uh, very pumped up to have Gendry back on the show after being gone for, what, three plus seasons of the show? Yeah, yeah, three and a half. Uh, you know, he was on the show for three full seasons. Then he was gone for three full seasons. And now he is, uh, he is returning a little bit more than halfway into this seventh season. So it's been a, a long time coming for for gendry to come back did you like that davos made the reference to like i thought you would just still be rowing somewhere yeah it was a good line i think if you were watching game of thrones in a movie theater i think that you probably got a big laugh on that line from all of the fans who've been uh, sort of like watching that meme of gendry uh rowing the boat for all these years yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, it's straight up a line from Joe Dempsey's Twitter, I believe, where he had written once upon a time, still rowing, dot, dot, dot. And uh, like the the line that Davos delivers there is very much just like a wink and nod to like that like viral tweet and that very, you know, kind of funny meme about where is Gendry? Is he just rowing in circles? Uh, so nice to have that addressed on the show. Were you surprised at all that Gendry was just in King's Landing this whole time? Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, where is he going to go? He only knows Flea Bottom, and they he was like out and about. Like he got taken to uh, Harren Hall at some point, right? And he got out. And then he got taken by the uh, Brotherhood Without Banners, and yeah. then uh, he went to Dragonstone, and then he just went back to where he lived. Do you think that we are, now that Gendry is back in the mix, now that Arya is in Westeros as well, and since earlier this season we saw Hot Pie, are we in for a reunion of those three characters at some point in season seven? Or does Game of Thrones have no time to, to bring that original crew back together? Yeah, I think we're done with Hot Pie. I think probably <laughs> we could see an Arya and Gendry reunion at some point. But my bigger question for you, Josh, is why is Gendry here as we are starting to hurdle towards the end game what is the significance of gendry yeah i mean i'm really curious to see uh because there's you know a few potential answers to that there's a you know a few potential ways that gendry could be massively important first of all he's part of this wrecking crew uh at east watch that's going north of the wall and hopefully is going to come back uh unscathed but almost certainly will not be coming back unscathed somebody in this crew at least one person if not multiple people is not going to make it i think we can talk about that in a few minutes um so beyond that we know that gendry's a good fighter he's got that awesome scene with the warhammer and he 
he's really his father's son in that moment. I think there's that aspect of it. I think that we're getting, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, if, if Game of Thrones is starting to get a little bit nostalgic towards the end, and that's something that we've talked about on these podcasts, you know, maybe the, the quote unquote navel gazing quality that's happening in a couple of these scenes. I think that the, the Gendry stuff I actually really like. I think this is a character that's been out in the world for a long time that we haven't seen. He's the only Baratheon still alive. So to have that guy drawn back into the mix, I think, is very, very fun. And you also get kind of this echoing of Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon in this new friendship that is very swiftly forged, uh, no blacksmithing puns intended, uh, between Jon Snow and Gendry, where they are kind of like, you know, mirroring their fathers, where they are, you know, they're old, you know, they're, they're very swift friends. They're going off to war together. Hopefully these are going to be people that are very simpatico. Um, the, the twist that Jon certainly doesn't know and mm-hmm. Gendry doesn't know either is that uh, that's that's John's adoptive father uh, is is uh, Gendry's father's you know former best friend when they were both alive. John's biological father was killed by Gendry's father, uh, so that's a fascinating dynamic as well. And I'm really excited to see how that plays out if that information comes to light eventually. And don't forget John's line also this season about how no son should be punished for the sins of their father. So uh, right. it'll be interesting to see if John ultimately does find out his lineage and does find out like, oh wait, hold on, this guy, his father killed my actual biological father. Is he able to sort of remember his own words? I think that he will be. I I think that that's going to be one of the themes that is going to... I think it's already becoming apparent, but I think it's going to be really clear by the end of Game of Thrones is, um, you know, I do have the belief that many of these characters will die, but many of them will survive as well, and some version of Westeros will be standing by the end of the whole show. And I think that you're going to see some tabula rasa for some of these characters. Like, you're going to get a clean slate for some of these people where that line, you know, that scene between Jon and Danny, like, don't judge me based on the actions of my father. Uh, This whole, like, sin of the past and you even get that in the jail cell scene uh, when they get to Eastwatch where it's like yeah a lot of us have reasons to hate each other but we're all on the same side we're still breathing I think that that's going to be the thing that takes precedence so I think that you'll see that um, potentially with the Gendry thing like I don't see John especially in that moment being vindictive towards Gendry. Gendry didn't plow a war hammer through John's biological father's chest. Those are other people who did that. Uh, and if John can forgive Daenerys Targaryen, whose father roasted his, uh, you know, his grandfather and his uncle alive, I think like he would be able to get over that. Um, but I think in terms of, in terms of potential significance, Gendry is a Baratheon if legitimized. And if like John and Danny are both out of the picture, potentially then, is Gendry a candidate for the Iron Throne if such a thing exists? I think that's something to at least kind of back pocket as a possibility. I don't think it's the likeliest possibility. Uh, I also think there is some historical um, significance to this friendship that is developing between um, Gendry and John. in that uh, when, you, when you go back and you look at the history of Aegon the Conqueror coming to Westeros, like his longtime best friend, is a guy named Oris Baratheon, who is like the first Baratheon. The people who were in charge of the Stormlands originally were not the Baratheons. Oris Baratheon is this bastard in the Stormlands who uh, is offered to to marry the daughter of, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the house that's in charge of the Stormlands at the time, but is offered to to marry the daughter of the guy who's in charge of that region. And he is greatly offended by the offer of having a bastard marry his daughter. And that insult is what kickstarts Aegon's conquest of Westeros. Uh, The Stormlands, after some struggle, are conquered. And Oris Baratheon is the guy who is given the Stormlands. And that's where the Baratheon name really kicks in. And he accepts like the same titles and house words and the stag and everything of the guy before him. But the first Baratheon was a bastard. And I think it's kind of interesting that right now the last Baratheon is a bastard as well. So there's something of a full circle quality there. And that guy, Oris Baratheon, ends up being the hand of the king to Aegon the Conqueror. So potentially we're seeing a guy that might become Jon Snow's ride or die. Uh, Like, you know, if he doesn't become the guy who is sitting on the Iron Throne at the end of the show, I think that you will see Gendry being somebody who is 
hugely supportive and influential in Jon Snow's life for however long that continues. So uh, a character that we love from the early days, there's a sense of nostalgia with this guy as well. And I think that he could be um, at least emotionally a really important person in the end game. And then practically too, because he's a blacksmith, we've got all this dragon glass, we got to start forging some weapons. So Gendry looks to be your guy who's going to be doing that, assuming he survives this trip to the wall. Okay, well, that's a good question. Who is coming back from the wall? Uh, Gendry is part of that. But it does seem like that would be a whole lot of work to get Gendry all the way up to Eastwatch, only to have him be a sacrificial lamb to the Night's King. Yeah, just to turn Gendry into a red shirt here, you know, Although, I don't think so. Zombie Gendry swinging that Warhammer, that could be something. That'd be cool. It'd be cool. But I don't think we're going to see it, at least not yet. Uh, you know, there's seven people that are passing through the wall. Davos is up there as well, though he's not joining the fight, at least not right now. Um, so just like focusing on those seven warriors, those seven main characters that are on this expedition, that are on this mission, Gendry is uh, basically the safest one in my book. Um, I think that he's he's coming back from this. I think that you don't just bring Gendry back for two episodes. You know, after all of this time away, you bring him back just to kill him off when he's this blacksmith, when he has this potential to be a really instrumental figure in the Great War to come. I don't think so. I, I really think that, like, I, I frankly think, I've talked about my theory that Jon Snow could die again, and if he is going to die again, it would be happening in this upcoming episode where we have this great battle beyond the wall based on the trailer. Uh, I think that we, we could see Jon Snow die in this episode. Like, I would, I would, be, I would sooner accept seeing that that and seeing him come back to life from such an incident before I would say Gendry is in trouble. I think Gendry is almost the safest person out of that crew. Okay, so you have actually gone through this and ranked all of these people that are beyond the wall right now, or at least at Eastwatch, uh, headed beyond the wall in order of the likelihood that they will perish in this battle. Should we go through it? Do you yeah, wanna, give, me you the, wanna... give me the list. I'll tell you if I would buy or sell at their current position. All right. Well, I think the likeliest person to die is Beric Dondarrion. I mean, he's done it a million times, right? So, like, what would one more death be at this point? But I think it would probably be the final death. And this is a character, the Lightning Lord it has been feeling this, you know, this pull of fate that is drawing him towards the north. And there's this great battle that he has to go up there for. And something, you know, he's really, there, there, he's really getting faded as well. You know, like there is this, this idea of destiny that's driving him to this place. And he is the guy who's sort of the mouthpiece for that. And I think second only to John, he is like kind of the rallying figure of this crew. He's the guy who's like, whatever our differences are, we're here and we're all here for the same purpose. Even if we don't think it's the same purpose, trust me, it's the same purpose. I think that's the guy that you unplug from this situation, especially considering the fact that he has all of these deaths under his belt already. I think you lose Barrick for sure in this next episode. Yeah, it seems like he got them where they need to be at this point, and I'm not sure what purpose he has moving forward. So I, I think you got that one. You nailed it. So I think the next one is probably Thoros of Mir. Uh, I think of, you know, the, the seven people that are there in no particular order. It's John, it's Gendry, it's the Hound, it's Tormund, it's Jorah, it's Thoros, it's Beric. Uh, I think of that crew... Thoros is, you know, the most readily identifiable red shirt, you know, didn't do so great in Survivor Dragonstone. I mean, he made it kind of far. <laughs> yeah, uh, he had a good run. He had a decent run. Uh, but, you know, he's he's, I think, the most expendable character on the board in terms of uh, in terms of uh, narrative importance. Certainly in terms of ability, he's very important. He has brought Beric back to life multiple times and he could potentially be somebody who either brings Beric back to life again in this episode in some way, shape, or form, or maybe does that for John if John gets killed and John needs to come back. Like, I think you could see, like, one final, like, mystical moment from Thoros. But what really is Thoros' endgame beyond this, you know, this quest beyond the wall? I do think that there is this idea of the Brotherhood on kind of a suicide mission. And I think that you got to lose two of the three. You know, if it's the Hound, if it's Beric, and it's Thoros, I think you're losing at least two of the three. And I think Thoros would be a pretty easy person to lose here. If not for the fact that Beric has died so many times and really feels like he's destined to lose his final life here, I would say that Thoros would be the likeliest. So I think it's like really splitting uh, splitting hairs between him and Beric. Splitting top knots, right. Splitting top knots, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about that. The only thing that is, is a little bit of a saving grace is that he's probably got to bring somebody back one more time so until that happens that he can only be the second person to die i think that's right you know i think he's he's gonna be he's he's not gonna make it out of this episode he's gonna have a moment or two i think but i think that we're we're close to the end of the line with thoris of mirror 
Okay. Who's after Thoros on your list? It makes me sad to say it uh, because he's been through so much just this season alone. He's had such like a bounce back season. But I think that just as swiftly as he recovered his health, I think that the next person on the line would be Jorah Mormont. Hmm. Um, And I think that you saw a lot of resolution to Jorah's story in this past episode. Uh, Jorah, he's cured of his grayscale. He comes back to Dragonstone. He is able to have physical contact with Daenerys. Like, no one is being like, no touching. You know, like, the, the cootie spot is long gone. And he, like, hugs it out with Daenerys. He kisses her hands. He's very much back in her good graces. The victory, like, the emotional, spiritual victory of redeeming himself for the crimes he committed against Daenerys long ago. He has overcome all of that and then some. The exile days are long in the past. And he is now uh, in charge of Danny's Queen's guard. You know, he is the guy who is in charge of her military, basically, and he is completely back at the inner circle. Uh, So that's a victory that already uh, exists. He has a great final scene with her. He has a great final scene with Tyrion, if these are indeed his final scenes with these characters. And we need something that is going to get Daenerys to be fully on board with the war against the White Walkers, right? So if you lose Jorah here, who's already a northerner, whose father was the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, uh, as Tormund was very eager to point out, for him to die in the north, for him to die on a mission where, you know, maybe he gets his hand on Longclaw at one point would be a nice, like, final send-off for him as well if he could go out swinging that thing. But if you have him dying in his home turf, if you have him dying against the White Walkers, and that serves as some sort of catalyst to get Daenerys to take this really personally now, I think that you could see a lot of plot utility out of that. And I think that you've seen a lot of resolution to Jorah's story as it stands. So I love this character, and I hope I'm wrong but he would be the third likeliest person of this group to die in my book. Okay. I will have my first disagreement with your list here because I think that the next person you have on your list is more likely to die before Jorah, and that's Tormund Giants Bane. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately it's very likely that we lose Tormund here as well. You know, there's seven people here, and I think that we're we're very likely to lose four out of the seven permanently. And I think that Tormund is involved in that. I think he's included in that group. It's a game of inches between him and Jorah, uh, just like it is between Thoros and Beric. Uh, but I I think that there's just more narrative juice out of losing Jorah than there is out of Tormund, who's really our only entry point into the Wildlings. We don't have any other main characters from the Wildlings section of the story. And I don't know if that's ultimately, you know, a super important thing that we're going to need moving forward, or if there's like a character who could step up from out of the background and now become the face of the Wildlings, or if you just have the fact that like John and the Wildlings are on the same page and that's all you need, that could be the thing. Um, But like, I don't think that like, I don't think that Tormund and Brienne need to like have a final scene together. I don't think that they are, you know, necessarily going to get together. They just had chemistry. They had chemistry. It was really fun while it lasted. Better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. You know, those scenes were really fun. And I think they were an unexpected uh, delight to the production as well. I think that the writers were surprised at how fun that was and how much that popped. And I think that's why when you saw, you know, earlier this season, there was like one or two scenes between Tormund and Brienne. I wouldn't be surprised if that's it. I wouldn't be surprised if we never get a scene between them again. I think that Tormund very likely could die here. I just think Jorah's a little bit likelier. Some poetry also if Jorah and Tormund end up dying together, of course. Jorah being from Bear Island and Tormund having had relations with a bear. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And also just like there, the fact that Tormund hates Jorah's dad so much. And like if they can have like some moment of like, uh, you know, like if that's really the theme of of the show in a lot of ways and of this story of like, don't judge me by the past, judge me by now. Uh, And if these two can kind of set aside their enmities and, and fight together to the death side by side. I think there's a lot of power to that. I'm surprised you have Davos this high up on your list. Davos isn't even going out to go pick up one of the whites. I do have Davos next. I mean, it's really because like if he goes out there, like if they need to call in the Onion Knight, then like desperate times for one thing. And also he's such a bad fighter that he would just get so severely outgunned so quickly that he would be in a real danger spot. He's also kind of a moral center of the show. You know, he is a level headed moral compass for so many of these people and certainly for John. And I don't know, you know, what is 
what is Davos's story beyond, you know, supporting role? Like, he's a really great supporting character, but what is his main driving story? I don't know that he has his own story. So I think just with the people who are left on the board, I would just put Davos this high, but I don't expect to lose Davos in this episode. I don't think that we're losing any of these other guys, uh, certainly not permanently, because the person that I have past Davos, uh, you know, even ahead of Gendry and the Hound in terms of likeliness to die is Jon Snow. I do think it's very possible that we see the second death of Jon Snow in this week's next episode. Are you counting that death as being likely? Like if Jon Snow dies and comes back to life, are you counting that as an official death? Yeah, it's a death. He died, right? Like, you know, he was dead for a little while and then he comes back. I think that counts as a death. It doesn't mean he didn't die. It's just a death that doesn't stick. But you've planted Uh, your flag on that Jon Snow will die again. I'm surprised you don't have him higher on your list. If you're counting that death and then coming back as a death, I feel like that you should probably have him like uh, right around where Jorah is on the list. Well, because I'm also giving a little bit of room to the idea that it's a total crackpot theory. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, that like, Maybe it's just like a complete figment of my imagination that this is going to happen. Like, I feel like I feel so much more confident that we'll lose Beric and Thoros and even that we would lose Jorah and Tormund than this would happen to Jon. Like, I do I do think that those are just more straightforward, clean deaths than um, than what's happening to Jon, though. The fact that the show really does keep bringing it up, you know, that it's been a it's been a simmering story between John and Daenerys, where Daenerys has been really fixated on the knife to the heart that Davos mentioned. And she brings it up again in this past episode and previews for next week. See, like John and Beric having hearts to heart about the idea of what death represents and death is the great enemy. So you can really already see like the scene where John's like, I died once. It was terrible. And Beric's like, yeah, I've done it like a thousand times. Let, let mm-hmm. me just like coach you through it for the next time. Hold it my beer. To you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hold my horn of ale. Mm-hmm. Like you could, you could really see like those scenes coming together. But I just think like in terms of like a streamlined mainstream sort of way, I think those four people, those are deaths that would stick. And I feel like they're a little cleaner and easier to predict than this happening to John. So I'm just couching my bet by having John a little bit higher up. The last headline on your list is that you have the hound all the way down at the bottom the most likely person to survive all of this the hound yeah just because of the clagane bowl we haven't seen the clagane bowl yet it's happening like it might not happen in the books i would not be shocked if it doesn't happen in the books but this is for sure happening on for the show. sure there's like, no doubt in your mind no doubt in my mind no doubt in my mind there is so much hype behind it and this final season this penultimate season at least or this first half of a final season of game of thrones has been so heavy on like the satisfaction factor of like really kind of giving you what yeah. you want like if you were to write the fan fiction ending of game of thrones which arguably is kind of what game of thrones mm-hmm. is doing for the books you know these are the types of things that you're going to see you're going to see all of these guys go past the wall and fight white walkers like you're going to see john and daenerys and all these people hanging out together on dragonstone you're going to see the Starks converging on Winterfell and all getting back together. You're going to see the Hound fight his zombified brother to the death. Like, these are things that are going to happen in the show version of Game of Thrones. I really fully believe that. I think it would be uh, it would be a real bummer if the bummer. show... It would be really, really disappointing if the show didn't give us the Clegane Bowl. Because the books probably aren't going to do it. And there is so much hype. And I think that David Benioff and Dan Weiss, the creators of the show are receptive to that kind of thing. And I think that it's too irresistible for them. I think why even have, you know, they've, they've put a lot of the, um, you know, there's a lot of stories that they've cut from the books that they haven't put on the show. And so it makes you think about, so what did you adapt from the books? What did you put on the show? Why is there a zombified mountain in the mix on the television series? And in my book, it's because he's going to fight his brother. Like, why did you bring the hound back, which is just a theory in the books? Why did you bring him back on the show? It's because he's got to fight his zombified brother. So this is happening. The okay. Colgain Bowl is real. The hound is the safest person on the board for me, and it's not close. Meanwhile, last night, we also got to see another reunion going on in King's Landing as Jamie and Tyrion were reunited by way of Braun. Were you pumped up to have the two Lannister brothers back on the same page, or at least in the same place? It was a great scene, right? I mean, like, and, and the like the kind of um, like the the chilly atmosphere of having this be and it was probably cold down there in the red keep with the black dread skeleton in the background and 
Uh, it's just like it's a great setting for this really fateful reunion between these two guys who last saw each other in the dungeons uh, back in season four. Uh, and it's just such a great line where Tyrion's like, well, you're going to have a really hard time cutting me in half with a sparring sword. And like you just like see Jamie kind of like seething with rage, like he wants to do something about this and there's really nothing he could do. And it was a great Tyrion moment, too, where we've really honestly been lacking great Tyrion moments for a while now where he gets to talk about like do you think that I wanted to be born this way um and it also gets the information on the board that uh now Jamie knows about White Walkers knows that this is again like that this is a possibility that at least his brother whose you know opinion and intelligence if he fully respects if not exactly his actions and his way of life and what he's done in the past if Tyrion is somebody who's coming to him and saying like this is something to take seriously. You're going to see Jamie Lannister taking this stuff seriously, especially after he, you know, faced down a dragon and lived to tell the tale. So in terms of uh, plot momentum and moving things forward, I really loved this scene. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that these guys can get back on the same page at some point down the line. I don't know that it's necessarily likely, uh, but I'd love to see these guys on the same page. Josh, in terms of this plan that's going on, uh, that we need to bring one of the whites to Cersei so that she buys that this theory or that the whites are a big enough threat that they can truce for enough time that they can go fight this other battle against the dead. Are you on board with this plan or is this too convoluted? Wouldn't it be, you know, if only Daenerys hadn't roasted the Tarleys and like, you know, just like took them prisoner or took, you know, like a couple of these people prisoner. And then they're like, hey, this is your like enemy. Let's just bring this person with us up to Eastwatch. Let's just hop over the other side of the wall. Just kill this guy real fast. Just like tie up the body. Watch him reanimate. And we got ourselves a white. Mm. Like, doesn't that just seem faster? And then like you can get to King's Landing a lot quicker and you're probably, you know, sparing yourself a lot of heartache. I mean, not necessarily the most humane thing to do, uh, but probably the fastest thing. And this is a, a season that has been, uh, you know, hitting fast forward on so many stories. So, yeah, I do think it's a little bit convoluted or even like Jon Snow being like, I'll sacrifice myself. I'll die past the wall and then you can bring my body back. And then someone else is like, no, I'll do it. You know, something like that would have just been faster. Not as good, you know, not as as fun storytelling, but I think that's just like the the swifter move. Where did Theon go? Where did Theon go? Yeah, he'd be a good person to go take Theon the wall and kill him also. I mean, (laughs) or or at least they could have brought him to Eastwatch. I mean, he seems expendable as well. If he's going to run away from Muron Greyjoy in that moment, I don't know how he's doing against the Night King, Rob. Okay, well, he's somebody that at least you could just throw him out as like, okay, hey, get him and while we run away. Or like John could have been like, before we go to Eastwatch, we have to take a pit stop at Winterfell and just like yanks Littlefinger and, you know, like throws mm-hmm. Littlefinger off of the wall and they just collect his body and bring him back. Yeah. So congratulations to uh, Cersei and Jamie, who yes. uh, seem to have a baby on the way. Steven seemed convinced that maybe there was more to it than this. Do you feel like that there is any chicanery on Cersei's part with this? Uh, chicanery. I love that word. Yeah, no, I don't think that we're, you know, I don't think that this is any kind of con. I don't think we're getting slipping jimmied here. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that this is legit. I think that Cersei is pregnant. I think that that is, uh, you know, we're, if we're having this idea of, you know, Cersei's got her groove back and Cersei's not letting what happened to Tommen especially and what she did at the Sept of Baylor visibly affect her at least probably bone deep it is really sticking with her uh, but she is projecting confidence she is projecting um, nothing but a thirst for power and really wanting to win uh, this war against Daenerys and really rule over Westeros and have the Lannisters be the house in charge uh, I think that the idea that on top of all of these victories that she's already um, you know got under her belt even though they just had this massive loss loss against the Targaryens I think the idea that now there is a future for the Lannisters now there is another child along the way and now there is the idea of a fresh start and you and I can be open about who we are Jamie and Cersei can now have their you know their relationship out in the public eye because who's going to challenge us after everything that we're about to do I think that that's really thematically in line with where we've been with Cersei so no I suspect no chicanery here at all I think that this is straightforward I think Cersei is pregnant with Jamie's kid and do you think that we ever see this baby on the show no god no because Cersei's totally gonna die before any of that happens <laughs> yeah but not like, for a while right not for a while but like i don't know i mean with the ways the story has been you know moving like you know nine months might go really quick 
So how do you see this story playing out for Cersei now? It seems like that she was in a lot of danger at the start of this episode, but now it feels like that Danny and her forces are going to take their eye off the ball for a little bit and go deal with the Night's King threat, right? Once John gets back. Right. Yeah. And I think that John is going to come back. Uh, and I think that this mission is probably going to go through. Otherwise, why are we spending time here? Like, I think we're going to lose a lot on the way to success. Like, I think the mission will be a success with casualties. Uh, so you imagine that John is going to be able to secure a zombie, uh, is going to be able to show this off to Cersei, who seems open to the idea right now in this episode. She's like, you know, maybe an alliance with Danny would be in our interest for now. They've got the numbers. We got to do this dad's way. Like, we got to do this how Tywin would have done it. So I think that it's really starting to, to line up with some of the stuff that we said earlier in our podcasts, you know, earlier this season of like, there's the, you know, there's the conventional wisdom as you're entering this season that the penultimate season was going to be the big battle for the Iron Throne. And then the final season is going to be the big battle for the fate of mankind. Uh, and I think we talked about the possibility of like, maybe it doesn't have to be one and then the other. Maybe it's simultaneous. Uh, you know, fight every battle everywhere in your mind, every outcome, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think that we're seeing the building blocks of that. Like, I think that the fact that Cersei is pregnant now, the fact that Cersei has had so much pep in her step with as many victories as she has had this season, I think that that's propelling her into the final season for sure in my book. Like, I think that Cersei is pretty safe for season seven, not safe at all for the final year, but I think that we're going to see Cersei. Uh, I think that she's going to she's going to be focused to a degree on this White Walker threat. But I don't think that she's going to take her eye off of the of the war for the Iron Throne, even if John and Daenerys both do. All right. And then finally, Josh, we haven't talked about anything going on up in the north. And we're seeing this bit of a dance going on between Sansa and Arya and Littlefinger. And then she is sneaking into Littlefinger's room and then finds this note. As of last night, we were not exactly sure what the note said, but we ended up finding out via a lot of different screen caps. This was a note, in fact, sent by Sansa to Rob Stark, outing Ned Stark as a traitor to King Robert. What is Littlefinger doing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't I don't like this story at all, to be perfectly frank. Uh, I'm really not digging what's going on in Winterfell right now. Uh, certainly like this rivalry that is brewing between Sansa and Arya is genuinely manufactured by Littlefinger to some degree, at least where he is trying to get Arya to mistrust Sansa and then probably trying to get Sansa to mistrust Arya. And I think that Benioff and Weiss talk about that a little bit in their inside the episode videos that they do. Uh, the one that they did for this week that Littlefinger is trying to pit the Stark sisters against each other. But who's got time for that right now? Mm -hmm. You know, like who has time for this? There's so much else going on in Game of Thrones right now that at least like the struggle for the Iron Throne comes with these massive set pieces and does have like, you know, greater ramifications for the, the fate of Westeros and the people who are, you know, living in this nation. Uh, but like, what's the, what are the major ramifications of this, of this little plot that's going on with Littlefinger and Sansa and Arya? I just don't know what the end game for it is. And I just don't like it. I don't like seeing, uh, seeing Sansa and Arya fighting. I think like thematically it's helping to reinforce this idea that, uh, as we've talked about before, like the sense of like, even if Arya returned to Winterfell, like there's no going home for a person like this who experienced the things that she experienced on the road that uh, does have so much fun, like slicing off heads, like Sansa says in this episode. Like, I'm sure that's great. Uh, like there is a, a bit of that. Like when Arya says, like, you're thinking about being a manipulator right now, you're thinking about being the queen in the North right now. Like at the same point, Arya probably is thinking to some degree, like, killing people is so cool. It's so much fun to do. And I'm really, really good at it. So I think that there is this growing divide between Arya and home, that there is no such thing as that anymore. And like the Nymeria scene from earlier in the season helps to reinforce that idea. I just don't like the way that the show is conveying it. Um, I don't know. Are you, are you more up on this storyline than I am? I am a big Littlefinger apologist. I don't love this storyline. I do feel like that Littlefinger is somewhat omniscient here in terms of how he's like outfoxing Arya Stark at this point, which, you know, she we've seen her train with the faceless men. And you would imagine that she's one of the most amazing people in the world at what she does. Yet Littlefinger, who is a mere mortal without any supernatural ability, is able to sort of like get the jump on what she's 
he's doing. So I don't really love that. But what if, let me pitch you on this. Please do. How about if... You know, Littlefinger has this plot to turn Sansa against Arya, and the sisters are able to figure it out, and then Sansa does in Littlefinger eventually. If this ultimately leads to Littlefinger's demise, would you be in on it? Uh, I guess. Mm, I don't know. Like, it just feels like a really defanged ending for Littlefinger, if that's where we're going. Like, I definitely think that Littlefinger has to have a major comeuppance before Game of Thrones ends. Uh, And I do think that... That there is a lot of, um, you know, poetic justice to the fact that the person that he has invested all of his feelings uh, from Catelyn Stark and like transposed them onto Catelyn Stark's daughter. It's very creepy. It's not cool. It's very uncomfortable. And for that to be his undoing, the thing that he wanted the most out of anything in the world, uh, you know, ruling Westeros with Sansa at his side, like a bid for that being the thing that ultimately cuts him down. Yeah, there's juice to that. I just don't think that, like, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like the way that they're going about setting that up, if that's where it's going, it just feels a little forced. Like, it just, it just doesn't feel like especially canny of Littlefinger to be doing that. But one of the things that, you know, is kind of interesting, I guess, is Littlefinger does have that line a few episodes back uh, about how if you see everything all at once, you'll never be surprised by any outcome. And then in the next episode, I think it's when he has his scene with Bran, and he gives back the Valyrian dagger. Uh, and you have this moment where Bran says chaos is a ladder. And Littlefinger's like, what? Like, how do you know? How do you know that? How do you know that that's my thing? And I think that there might be this idea of Littlefinger doesn't see everything. And especially like the mystical stuff that's going on in Game of Thrones these days. Like that's something that he never could have accounted for. So maybe there's something cool about that being his undoing if that's where we're going but you're the big little finger fan like if that's where we're going are you satisfied with that as a little finger ending yeah i think if his demise comes at the hands of sansa i think that that's fine i really i'm starting to believe i don't think he gets out of these next two episodes of game of thrones wow. i don't think that oh we God. see little finger in the back half of season 7 well i guess you know if if we are starting to see this idea that there will be like some shaky truce between mankind that's going to like battle it out against the White Walkers, if that seems to be at least what like John is hoping for, and we assume that John is going to be at least partly successful in this quest beyond the wall, so things are going to shape up in that direction. Where does Littlefinger fit within that framework? Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe you lose him before you get into that stage of the end game. Maybe there could be one last move for him to go back to Cersei. That I feel like that that's his one spot if he gets sort of like chased that out of the north. That would be so fun. That would be really really fun. I would love that. That would be great. That would be really really awesome. I would love to see Littlefinger go back to King's Landing and like come to come to Cersei with some sort of pitch of like, yeah, no, uh, all of my ideas didn't really work out, but here's like something that is going to be just like irresistible to you and Cersei, who's uh, showing herself to be really Tywinian in her thinking or at least trying to be uh, maybe being receptive to that. I'm going to hang my hopes on that. I think that that sounds a lot more fun. Yeah, I'd like that too. All right, Josh. So we have got our feedback show coming up on Wednesday. Looking forward to that. And then only two more nights of Game of Thrones here in the rest of this season. And this is the beginning of our supersized episodes. This is going to be a 70-minute episode coming up this week and then an 80-minute episode coming up in the season finale. Wow. Yeah. Game of Thrones, the movie. Yeah. Well, there's a lot coming up uh, these uh, next two nights. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? This is a very deep dive today. Um, no, I mean, I think we... Where's we Euron? Where is Euron? I don't know. Just like running fast somewhere. Just like going from point A to point B to point C. Very, Are we very done quickly. with Euron for the season? No, no. God, no. No way. No way. Well, where does he show back up? I don't know. There's two episodes left. Is there's, he the father know. of Cersei's baby? No, we would have seen we would have seen a little something of that. I think I don't think that they would have just like dropped that without uh, without any kind of like Euron and Cersei scene. Like that's just not cool if they if they just Yara Yara past that. Mm-hmm. Okay, where's Yara? What's happening with her? All the Greyjoys are just gone. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're gonna get any like satisfying Greyjoy resolution this season. I think that that could be uh, that could be season eight material. Okay. All right. So a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, what are you working on over on THR, Josh? I uh, got some more interviews coming your way. I got a Jerome Flynn interview coming up. I've got this Matt Shackman, the director. That interview is coming by the time that you're listening to this. That should be up on THR. Uh, and just more nerdy deep dives. I'll probably write a something or other about that Oris Baratheon story because I think that that's kind of cool. And I really like that Gendry's back on the show. So 
Keep an eye out. More nerdery coming your way. THR.com slash Game of Thrones. All right. Follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. He's at Round Howard. I am at Rob Sisterino. Looking forward to hearing all of your comments. Make sure you subscribe for our feedback show. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash GOT iTunes. We always appreciate your feedback and your star ratings. Josh, talk to you on Wednesday. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.